The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Do Gooder podcast. I'm super excited about today's guest, who is one of the two people behind Instagram's Barbie Saviour account. For over 10 years, Emily Worrell has had on-the-ground experience of international NGO work within Uganda. She co-founded and was the executive director of the 12,000-plus NGOs in Uganda. After six years, she realized that perhaps the last thing Africa needed was another American-led NGO. This realization led to her pouring her creative energies into a plastic doll. Barbie Saviour, the Instagram sensation was born. Her satirical white saviour has over 167,000 followers. Emily combines a treasure trove of sharp writing, photography, and social media skills from over a decade in the NGO sector to comment on the development industry's many failures in Africa. Currently, Emily is the Regional Communications Advocacy and Fundraising Director for a grassroots NGO in Uganda focused on care reform. She has also written for The Guardian and her work with Barbie Saviour has been featured in the BBC, CNN, NPR, Al Jazeera, Huffington Post, Quartz and various other media outlets. I'm so pleased to welcome you to the show, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be able to be a part of it. Oh, me too. Me too. Now, I'd love to start out by understanding a little bit more about you. And the first question that I usually ask guests is what does doing good mean to you personally? I think that has changed for me over the years. But right now in the scope of looking at international development, doing good means to me like minimizing my footprint essentially whether that's removing myself from the center of the narrative or another way, but just basically being a support system rather than the hero, essentially, is what how to ethically do good, I think, in today's world. Yeah, interesting. And I think that that whole idea of removing yourself from the center of the narrative is, is something I want to unpack a little bit more. But I guess I'm, I'm a little bit interested in where did you get the motivation or the desire to work in international aid and development? So, I mean, I started so young. I was 20 when I moved to Uganda, which was just insane. And I think it definitely came from a place of wanting to improve the situations for other people but it it definitely now 
10 years down the road, I can like see it was rooted a lot in ego and white saviorism. And it's really hard to critique that, especially for those who are in altruistic careers, because it almost seems like when you set out to do good, there's no room for critiquing what you're doing because it's coming from a sacrificial place. And I think that is definitely where I came from. And it took a few years and a lot of very patient people to kind of make me come to the realization that that's not an effective way to work in this space. Yeah, for sure. And were there particular kind of instances or experiences that got you kind of thinking about this stuff and starting to, I guess, critically reflect on those experiences? There wasn't like one or two like aha moments. Um, It was just, I think, accumulation of just small things that built up over time. And the town I was living in was just kind of a hotbed of just white saviorism and that's ginger uganda and so it was very much in your face all the time so i think that definitely helped me get to the point of realizing my role in it and kind of then being able to deconstruct how i've viewed basically my whole career up until that point and what i can do to make it less harmful in the future yeah and you've focused a lot on kind of this volunteerism phenomenon were you a volunteerist yourself i was (laughs) yep (laughs) i started in 2007 so between 2007 and 2009 i was frequently coming to Uganda to volunteer in an orphanage, which just makes me cringe now. (laughs) That was my gateway into this world, as I think it is for many people. And were you returning to the same orphanage over and over again? I was, yeah. So where did the idea for Barbie Saviour come from? So my friend Jackie and I, who started it, we would constantly just kind of process with each other just such blatant white saviorism we were seeing that was harming people and we didn't really know what to do with that and one day we were just joking and said we should start an Instagram account and then she was back in the U.S. at that time so this was like my evening when we were chatting and by the time I woke up she had gone to Walmart and bought the doll and taken the first (laughs) photos and so it just started from there so it was quite interesting like doing that across the ocean from each other and like we all we've always said this from the beginning like we started Barbie Savior for us to kind of process what we had been seeing like Mm. and clearly it struck nerve but the intention wasn't to go viral or anything it was just for us to kind of process what we've seen and been complicit in as well and do you want to unpack some of those issues those things that you've seen and been complicit in I think you know a lot of people 
kind of look at an account like Barbie Saviour and can, you know, understand it to some extent, but not having done it yourself, I think it's, it's really kind of difficult to understand what it's like to be complicit in doing those things and then turn around and realize the harm that you've caused. An easy one that I've already mentioned is volunteering in orphanages. There's a growing momentum of people advocating um, and organizations advocating on the harm that causes to children. And most people who volunteer in orphanages, myself included, want to help. And they're not aware of just the attachment issues that children can have by forming relationships with volunteers over and over and over again when they don't have the security of parent figure. And so I think that is a pretty clear example of, okay, you have people coming in wanting to help, and then you have the actual child who's going to have serious like attachment issues through their life with this revolving door of volunteers that come through. And then unpacking that even further, like, do they need to be in the orphanage? You look at orphanages that exist simply because they can get money from volunteers that come in and keep the children there because the volunteers that come in can finance the orphanage and this, that, and the other. And I think that's like a really good example of seeing like the positive intent of a volunteer coming and then the harm caused to the children in question. Absolutely. And I, and I think a lot of people don't understand that it's an industry. Oh, yeah, it totally is. Yeah. And it's built, you know, to really kind of play on the good intentions of, of people that want to support vulnerable children without understanding that it's, it's essentially a fundraising tool. Exactly. And like, if I think back to like when I did that in 2007, like none of that was even on my radar. I just purely was coming at it from just such a singular angle of like, oh, I'm, I'm helping mm. and that's enough. And I think that's why we're here on this podcast because it's, it's not enough. We have to do it in a positive way that doesn't harm the people we're trying to help. So why do you think Barbie is a good protagonist? for telling this story? Um, I think she is an almost like an easy protagonist because she's not real. Yeah. And it's very easy to see it when it's a doll doing these things. And obviously, like, with all of our posts, we go extra and over the top with all of, like, the situations. But... Some of them aren't that far from reality. No, they're not. Uh, they're not that much of a stretch, but it's much easier to see just the absurdity in it when it's a doll rather than an individual who might be doing these things and you're calling out because, I don't know, I have issues with call-out culture in general. Like, I don't think it's always effective, but I think it removes, like, that element of just attacking one person for what they're doing and highlighting through a doll basically (laughs) 
the absurdity of it. And it, it kind of is a step removed and allows people from a wide range of places to relate to it. Because you have people who are volunteering and like relating to it. And then others who have kind of removed themselves Mm. from this because the absurdities and relate to it so I don't know it's interesting and like again like we didn't set out to like really make a like to change anything we're obviously making a statement through our posts but one thing we said from the beginning Jackie and I is like we wanted to remain true to ourselves and not like just have it be an expression of our experiences Mm. and if other people related to it great but we didn't want to dictate how they related to the account, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure, sure. And I think, you know, having Barbie as, you know, a doll is much easier to challenge behaviours without a personal attack. Yeah, and again, it's just easier to see it when it's just like this bizarre, like, doll (laughs) photoshopped onto a background, like, it's so easy to see like the absurdity whereas like if that post would have happened in your feed with a friend you you might not see it because it's become so normalized today to go overseas and volunteer and post it all over your Instagram and make problematic statements as you're doing it and not not have any accountability because you're volunteering you're doing good yeah what's also quite genius about barbie savior is the the narrative that comes through in the in the posts so the the way you're talking about how you're structuring the the picture and the post is actually what people are putting out there on their own instagram feeds when they're really doing this without saying it so blatantly yeah also what i love about the captions we've done is just like her inability to kind of like see the issue (laughs) like she's very like aloof and like references the problem but just is like oh I'm not a part of it which I think is also a very common thing some of my favorite captions are very much in that vein where where she's not able to acknowledge her place in this And particularly, I think the one uh, where she says, I've noticed people informing me that Africa is a continent and not a country. I hope you can forgive my mistake. I have so much to learn, but I do know one thing for certain, and that is that my love for this place is bigger than any country, even bigger than the country of Africa. (laughs) (laughs) The reason we did that actually is because you know, it's just funny creating something online and how people respond to it. But like <laughs> Barbie Savior is just such like there's so many things people could get angry about, right? Like yeah. it's just absurd. But like if you look at it, like you know it's satirical. Yes. And the one thing that people like would not drop, like they would not address anything other than like we'll constantly get comments that are like, Africa is not a country. And I'm just like, we're aware. I think you're kind of missing the point. Because like they could get all the other satire, but not that part. And we would get jams. Like that was the one thing throughout that people were just like, you can't joke about this. (laughs) I'm also quite interested in that because you do have 167,000 followers. 
and I'm sure you have negative pushback. What are the kind of things that people get upset about? I'm going to have to think back because honestly, like, we've not posted, I think, in almost a year. And, like, most of the negative comments were the first, like, the first six months when it really was picking up and being in the news and all that. I think one of the biggest things is people would get offended and say, like, we are discouraging people to volunteer. And then we would get a lot of, like, why don't you stop making fun of people on the internet and actually do something <laughs> good with your life. Completely unaware that, like, if we had followed that narrative, like, that was just switched. Like, we tried doing that, and then we were like, oh, wait, this is a bit of a mess. Yeah. Yeah, so I think those were the two biggest critiques we got over and over again. And honestly, like, we just didn't engage with any of the negative, because we didn't have time. Like, again, we didn't set out to really change anything through Barbie Savior and it was just something we did for ourselves and in our spare time to kind of help us process what we've seen and experienced. So yeah, we didn't really engage with many of those negative comments. Are the comments overwhelmingly supportive, do you think? Or do people get what you're trying to say? Yeah, I mean I think people definitely get it. And those that don't like eventually move on like they don't stick around but the other interesting thing is because we've been like so historically like quiet in our comment section like I don't know if we've ever like engaged much it's interesting to see like when someone doesn't get it and makes a comment the people that jump to defense to explain it to them which is very nice that we don't have to I have to kind of like people are getting it and then taking that to explain to other people because I think there's a lot of assumption like especially with the comment we get all the time like you're not going to change anything with satire and it's just like that's fine we didn't set out to change anything with satire like we don't think Barbie Savior is going to save the humanitarian world like she's just not yeah, so I think people put a lot of like their own projections onto the account, which is fine. That's what it's there for. I think it's fascinating. And I also think, you know, satire can play a massive role in stimulating the conversation about these really Absolutely. serious issues. And I think it's a launching point, right? Like yeah. it's it's not going to sustain it. You can start there. You can start with satire. You can start with comedy, like of course it's like a huge part in how we address just what we're processing um in our day-to-day life but past that you have to have real conversations which i think the account has helped people like it's a launching pad right like they're able to see it they're able to kind of relate to it in whatever way they want and then take that and have the conversations that need to be had about this Yes. Issue. Yes. And I think you're reaching a different audience than you otherwise might. I mean, you're, you're reaching people that appreciate satire and dark humor who mm-hmm. might not be interested in naturally interested in the issues that you're talking about, but it's a, it's a way to engage that audience. Exactly. Now you were originally anonymous. What, uh-huh. what was behind that? So, especially when it was, like, really gaining momentum, 
we wanted the focus to be on Barbie Savior, not to be on us. Yeah. Because we felt that detracted from the white savior complex. Like, if you're relating to Barbie Savior, great. Relate to her. You don't need to know the people behind. We felt that would really, like, take away from just the satire and, like, the focus a bit. And also, like, with my like life situation at the time um I was still living in Jinja and that would have been like a disaster if I would have everyone was like around me talking about it I was like oh yeah it's a great account <laughs> that must have been quite surreal yeah it was weird yeah I'm <laughs> it sure. was really weird I had like a hidden drawer in my room with all, my, all the Barbie <laughs> and you're no longer yeah. anonymous I- no, so then after like a few years, we partnered with Radiate on doing a social media guide, basically. I think NPR did an article and they were like, can we put your names? And we were like, yeah, sure. So it wasn't like any fanfare or anything. Barbie Saber had been established on her own and like our life circumstances had changed a bit. And honestly, like at that point, we weren't posting that much anyway. Mm. I want to read out Barbie Saber's Instagram bio. Jesus, adventures, Africa, two worlds, one love, babies, beauty, not qualified, called, 20 years young, it's not about me, but it kind of is. I mean, it's genius and it really does sum it up, but I think it goes into this deeper issue, which is something you've mentioned a few times so far, which is the white savior industrial complex, which is Mm -hmm. something that was put forward by the Nigerian American author Teju Cole. I want to talk about that, particularly in relation to the volunteerism sector. How do you see this type of saviorism manifesting in the volunteerism sector and what kind of role do you think privilege plays in in all of this? Yeah, I mean, I think you can't really separate privilege from this because the entire industry is almost built on the white savior complex, right? Right. So it's those that have the financial means to travel, um, and give back and you often find them traveling to developing countries and gap year kids and all of these things like there's an entire industry built on the altruism of those who want to do good but when you have an entire industry built on it you're going to have a lot of ethical dilemmas so like kind of how i see it is like these volunteers engage wanting to do good but get lost in kind of the system I think that there needs to be a lot more like education around how to volunteer effectively because with the white savior complex like take a volunteer who's coming let's say to Uganda for their gap year if you're put in a volunteer place you're almost put on a pedestal And I've been on that pedestal. Mm. Anything you do, anything you do to help, even if it's like the smallest thing is just like praised and rewarded by those back home who might be supporting you. And also people who are wanting you to feel that way and have set up the industry like to benefit off of 
your finances or your like I, I keep bringing back into the orphanages but it's such a clear example like a volunteer coming into an orphanage like they have those kids there sometimes just for you to work with like those kids can be with their families and so I think that is purely a state of privilege where you're coming into another country and able to kind of dictate how the volunteer arena works based on like the funds you have to give. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I guess kind of winding it back to before people come and turn up ready mm-hmm. to volunteer. What do you think the the white savior complex, what role does kind of privilege play Mm -hmm. in perpetuating this idea that you can go and help in the first place and then you're in a position to do so? I mean, I can specifically speak to the American evangelical side of things, which is probably one of the loudest voices in this arena. But I think just from what I've witnessed in my own life and other people who have come through the same channels with in the American evangelical world, it's applauded to like go and volunteer overseas. And it's almost like, again, you're put on that pedestal and like the further you go or the longer you go or the more you sacrifice, the more notoriety you get within your community who often funds you to go and this kind of thing and the white savior complex like people get caught up on like the fact that the word white is in there and like it is majority white Mm. people doing these things it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be white but it falls along power lines which often fall and privilege lines which often fall along color lines and that's why you see a lot more white people coming to do these volunteer trips because it just like it's it's just a mess I think it's a bit of white guilt I think it's a bit of like just altruism gone wrong it's just very messy when you start to dissect it because people hold altruism like so closely to them it's almost like a religion like yeah it's so ingrained like in our humanity like across the world everyone wants to help right and that's not a bad thing but when it gets bad is how we do it and how it really benefits us instead of the person we're trying to help and i think that's the core of the white savior complex is like when you're more focused about how it's how you're going to feel how you're going to be perceived and how it's going to help you rather than the person you're just going to meet with for an hour. Like, are you really changing their life? Yeah. It just gets so messy with like the actual connection between wanting to do good and actually doing good, which takes a lot of time and can't be done in a seven day volunteer trip. Yes. And I want to pick up on, on something you, you mentioned around, you know, community celebrating you particularly within the the faith space sending over and doing mission trips and so on I guess something I've noticed working in particularly in the student travel sector who are going and volunteering in orphanages and and other places is that there almost seems to be a process over time with 
with young children of building them up to be excited and to expect to go and change someone's life or go and participate in one of these trips. And and they spend a lot of their youth surrounded by stories of people doing these missions and these trips. And by the time they get to, you know, the age of 16, 17, they're just completely filled with this idea that they're going to go and change the world or they're going to do good. Yeah, no, I, I think we see a lot of that. And I can't speak to that from my own personal experience. I wasn't really fed that that kind of information growing up. But I have a lot of friends who were, who like these famous missionaries were applauded and they were taught about them in church and they did various like fundraising drives throughout their youth to like give back. And I think that's where it kind of like, you get built up to that because I do have a lot of friends who say like I was almost like taught that like this was the epitome of like making it in life is being able to go and volunteer and build a career on that and then when they get into it it's just not what has been preached to them their whole lives Mm. and that's where I think a lot of the just kind of messiness comes in because there's such a disconnect. And how did your community respond to your change in attitude? It depends. Like my community in Jinja, I lost pretty much everyone. I can't separate my faith from this just because that was like kind of what drove me to do these things. And then at the same time where I was having this realization that what I was doing might not be what was right, I also was questioning my faith entirely. And so to me, those kind of are inseparable. And I had of like my family not really caring like they care obviously cared about me but not really caring where I landed Mm. where a lot of people questioning their faith don't have that privilege because often I know that's a huge source of tension is parents and families wanting you to remain in the faith that you were raised in Mm. yeah so to me I can't really separate the two and like because of that my family and my community at home completely supported me. And I was really lucky to have that. And do you think that has enabled, you know, an education of sorts for your wider community back at home around these issues? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I don't really have like a huge community, but like through my friends and my family at home, yeah. definitely there's more of a awareness and just seeing them, like, especially seeing my parents react to Barbie Savior has been so interesting. I, I bet. They love her more than anyone else. <laughs> um, so that's been really fun. And, like, it's been interesting to see uh, how people have responded to that. Yeah, they must be super proud. I would be if my child did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like, I just remember when I, because, like, I told in the beginning days like it was super hush hush top secret like not very many people knew and I remember telling my dad and I like the way I like it was over Skype and like the way I like prefaced it like I think he thought I was gonna tell him I was pregnant like I need you to like remain calm everything's gonna be fine like don't judge me (laughs) and then I could just see his face on Skype and I was like 
okay, I need to stop like overreacting. It's just like, <laughs> just <laughs> So on that then, who has or is your greatest influence in doing good and, and why? That is a great question. I honestly don't know. I take like, I take inspiration from so many different people. And I think right now there's a couple people in my life, like my good friend Teddy, he's been pretty outspoken on the white savior complex in general through his blog and writing. And in the last few years has like kind of taken a step back from that and a mindset of, I need to stop talking about it and actually do what I want to see in my own community. And I think that's a really inspiring thing to have witnessed for the last four years, that transformation of, okay, I can talk about this, but what does it look like in practice? Yeah. Yeah. And I see that a lot with other people in my life. I think my boss at my current organization is also a great example of that. He's Ugandan and lives in the UK and has like, so my current organization, we work in care reform. So helping orphanages repurpose their services and Mm -hmm. get children back into their families. And yeah, I think basically just surrounding myself with people who do it, not on a huge platform, just in their own communities and wanting to see true change which takes so much time on that what do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is and when i talk about that it's something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking as a society oh gosh there's so many things (laughs) um i think the most obvious one is global warming but in the sphere of maybe development i think immigration is a huge huge issue and i don't have a lot of personal experience working with it just here and there through the work we do with orphanages but yeah i think there's a lot that's being messed up with that in the development world um and there needs to be some accountability but those are the bigger kind of international organizations that are guiding those steps, um, which again, I, I deal with more in grassroots organizations. And what do you think needs to change even at the grassroots level to address that? I think more collaboration. That's, I, I think, just across the board in the NGO sector is there's almost a competitive attitude rather than a collaborative attitude not one organization can tackle any of these issues like there has to be cohesion and working together or else it's just not going to work and i see that a lot like especially in the 10 years i've been here is just ngos constantly like trying to outdo themselves and be the best and do the most and it's just like at what cost is always my question Absolutely. I think that's such an issue, particularly in the care reform, child protection sector, mm-hmm. but because that's where I've experienced it a lot as well. But I think it's it's a general issue across all sectors within development. I agree with you. Like, again, I have the most experience in care reform, but from from what I've seen and heard from my friends in other sectors, it's, it's across the board. 
Going back to your younger self that was fresh-faced in Uganda, what would you say to that person knowing what you know now? <laughs> so many things. <laughs> um, the issue is she wouldn't listen, so I would tell her to listen, <laughs> to really, really listen yeah. in these sectors. We always listen to other experts, right? Other people who have done yeah. the work and development for so long. And yes, like listen to what they've learned and seen and everything, but listen to the communities that you're actually working in. That's priority number one and something that is constantly left out of the equation. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think that plays right back into the white savior complex as well is, is listening to other professionals that are probably white rather than listening to the communities themselves. If you could tell the whole world something and know that everyone would hear it, what would it be right now? In regards to this conversation and this issue in particular, I would say to please be reflective of how you donate, volunteer, and support organizations and make sure that you're not just doing it to check a box to make yourself feel good, but to actually help make lasting change. And tell me about someone who you think is doing a lot of good in the world right now and why? Yeah, I mean, I kind of already touched on my friend Teddy, but I'll just kind of summarize that again. I think his approach, and I've learned so much from him, Basically, um, he has a moringa farm um, in his his hometown, and he has basically given up a career with the World Bank. And like you know, he was playing in the big leagues of international development, and completely walked away from that because he wanted to see um, his own community be improved and so the farmers he's working with he really spends a lot of time investing in them and making sure that they're gonna not be sustainable today to pay their bills but sustained in 5 10 15 years down the line and it's a lot of hard work to actually do that yeah I think that's the thing is like anyone I've seen actually doing good it's not glamorous it's not fun it's not easy it's really hard work and takes a lot of commitment and most of them aren't talking about it they're not posting about it on social media and they're they're too busy like actually (laughs) trying to really invest and yeah I think I think that I've been really lucky to know quite a few people in my life that are doing that and they also don't put themselves as the hero of the story which I think is key. Yes it's a really important issue around this whole centering the the person as the hero and this hero worshipping culture that we seem to have for people that go off and and do what we see as good. Okay so just to wind up where is your favorite place on earth? There's a place just outside of Jinja that's like this little 
uh, hotel in the middle of the Nile in the rapids called Wild Waters. And it's by far one of my favorite places I've ever been to. Sounds beautiful. And is it some, is it a secret spot or is it somewhere that everyone knows about? Uh, most people know about it. It's just not the easiest to access. Yeah. And then when you get there, it, it feels very like, I've never been there when it's like so busy. Yeah. It sounds amazing. Yeah. What books are you reading at the moment or podcasts are you listening to? I'm rereading Brene Brown right now um, just because I need the refresher sometimes. I don't think you need to explain <laughs> that one. <laughs> Let me just peek at what one I'm reading. Um, yeah. Rising Strong, that's the one I'm reading. Um, yeah, no, Brene Brown writes a lot on vulnerability and I am fascinated by that topic and try to implement it as much as I can, even though it's so uncomfortable. Yes. Yeah, so I'm rereading that and then I just downloaded like six books to read on my leave. And do you listen to podcasts? Yeah, I listen to quite a bit. Radio Lab is one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. I'm a true crime junkie, so basically any true crime podcast that gets released, I will listen to it, even if it's terrible. Um, (laughs) And then I just started listening to George the Poet's podcast, which is really interesting. It's different than any other podcast I've listened to. And he is Ugandan and just did a show here this weekend so that's what made me listen to it um because i saw him perform and it was really impressive awesome i have to look that one up so emily i want to thank you so much for sharing your time and your knowledge and experiences on the do gooder podcast it's been so interesting to have you on and i personally have been following Barbie Saviour from the start and I think you know you've you've through setting up that account you've added a really important extra voice to the discourse around uh, volunteerism but particularly around orphanage tourism which is a an issue very close to my heart yeah I I really want to thank you for your time and I definitely want to get you back on again in the future and unpack some more of this stuff Absolutely. I would love that. And thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and share. Head to www.leematthews.com to find out more.